You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. It's a great uh, joy to be with you again this morning, and as Pastor Keith said, to, to wrap up the study in the Gospel of Luke. Um, It's been a good study for us to get to dip in from time to time and uh, follow along in that, and I'm excited uh, that we get to conclude that and really tee up for a study in the gospel, part uh, in the book of Acts, uh, part two really of Luke's uh, writing. So if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 22, and we're going to be looking at verses 39 to 46. And in our passage this morning, we get to see one of the most sacred scenes in all of Scripture. Uh, We're we're really entering into a holy moment in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, It's as if the the veil and, and mysteries of God in many ways are being peeled back as we see Jesus in prayer just before he goes to the cross. This really is a a key moment in in the gospel that Luke sets up as this decisive time where Jesus will go on to defeat the powers of darkness. And in many ways, the battle at hand is won in the garden with God on his knees in prayer. Jesus will be in the garden with this internal tension within himself, wrestling. Will will he go to the cross and face excruciating suffering? Or, Or will he pull back in this moment of trial, this hour and power of darkness? And what I want us to see this morning in, in Luke 22 is that Jesus's submission is our salvation. Jesus's submission to the Father means our salvation. Now, before we dive in and consider this great battle in the Garden of Gethsemane, I want us to think back to another garden, the first garden, the Garden of Eden, where there was another battle that took place. Because really, it's, it's in the first garden, that garden with Adam being tempted by that serpent, the devil, that this cosmic conflict comes to a climax in the garden of Gethsemane. If you remember back in, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, uh, we're told that God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, in his image. He created them to be his image bearers, to dwell in his presence, to to walk in relationship and fellowship with him. Adam and Eve were to to cultivate the earth and to expand the borders of the garden so that the glory of God would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. This was their mission. This was their task. 
And yet we know in, in Genesis 3 that Satan, disguised as that serpent, entered the garden. And he got Adam and Eve to question the goodness of their God. He said, did God really say? Can you really trust his word? Can, can you submit to the will of God? And we know the story. We know that Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They, they chose to follow their own desires rather than the will of the Father, rather than submit to his good command. And the result was cataclysmic, a return to chaos. Darkness entered as sin came into the world and with it came death and suffering and brokenness that has filled the earth since that time. Because of Adam's sin, mankind became unable to reflect the glory of God, to be his image bearers as we were meant to be. In many ways, we were defaced. And this is true of all of us since Adam. Adam was the head of humanity, the rep representative of us all, and in that garden, we sinned in Adam. In Adam's disobedience, we rebelled against God. And all of humanity fell and has been born under condemnation since that day. But it gets even worse than that. It's not just that we are under condemnation, guilty, rebels, it's that ever since that sin came, it has entered into us like a poison, like a power that rules over us. And we are unable, unwilling to worship and serve and bear forth the image of God as we were created to do. Rather than reflecting our God and Father as our creator, we look more like the God of this world, that old serpent, the devil. And our hearts are, are bent on not worshiping God, on not loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and glorifying his name as we were created to do. You see, the, the reason there are wars in the Middle East right now, people killing other image bearers of God. The, the reason our streets are, have been filled with riots and chaos and murder and division and enmity is because we look like our father, the devil. We bear his mark. And because in Adam, we are all under the rule and power of sin. This is the, the bad news. It's, it's against this black backdrop that even in the garden, we see the light and grace of God pierce into our world with a promise. If you, if you remember Genesis 3.15, God 
makes this promise to humanity. He says, I will redeem humanity. I, I will one day send a Messiah to deliver you from sin and Satan and even death. And that, that promise is given to the serpent himself. In Genesis 3.15, God tells the serpent that one day, Eve, the mother of all living, the woman will have a seed. She will bear an offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. But in the process, he himself will be severely afflicted. This is the first promise of the Messiah, the first promise of the gospel of God redeeming humanity from our fallenness, our brokenness. And all throughout the Old Testament, this promise gets picked up again and again and again. The prophets tell of a day when a Messiah, a king, will come, and he will establish an eternal kingdom. In that kingdom, all of God's enemies will be removed and defeated. God's people will be brought under the rule and reign of God, and they will once again live in perfect fellowship with him. We will be remade back into the image of God and display his glory and his goodness. This is the storyline of the whole Bible. This is the unfolding cosmic conflict in human history that has been taking place since that first garden. And it comes to a culmination and climax in this other garden, just before Jesus goes to the cross. And, and so I want us to now look at Luke 22 in light of that storyline, in light of that context. And in Luke 22, we see that serpent, Satan, is still active and at work, seeking to snuff out the image of God, sneaking to shortcut the Messiah's work and mission in the world. And Luke 22, in verse 3, Look with me there. We see that Satan enters Judas. Satan enters Judas, and he, he's going to go get the, the leaders of the Israelites to betray, and, and he will lead a mob that will arrest Christ and eventually hang him on the cross. Just, just a few verses down, Jesus tells Peter that Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. He's going to tempt you and destroy you, Peter, and you will fall and fail if I don't pray for you. But I have prayed for you, Peter. And so it's in this scenario. It's, it's as we see Satan on the move in rage against the Son of God looking to destroy him and his followers that we find Jesus and the disciples on their way to the Mount of Olives. And I begin reading in, in verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And so now, Jesus has just finished the Passover meal with his disciples. He's told them, 
that he will give his life. And he goes out to this garden just east of Jerusalem, uh, a place called the Mount of Olives. Matthew tells us in this Mount of Olives there is a garden called Gethsemane. And this was Jesus' custom. This is where the disciples and him often went for a time of retreat and prayer and rest. And, and, and get the picture, it's, it's nightfall, Passover's over, it's, it's the nighttime as they go out to this mount. And there they are in the garden. And I want us to walk through these verses by thinking about three words. There's three words to help us move through this passage. And the first is the command, then the cup, and the crown. The command, the cup, and the crown. So first, the command. Look in verse 40. Jesus goes out to the garden with his disciples, and he gives them this command. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter temptation. If you jump down to verse 46, we see that Jesus, after praying on his own, comes back to the disciples and he says, rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. So, so here's the command. Jesus, Luke frames this whole passage in the beginning with, with the command, pray that you won't enter temptation. And he closes the passage, pray that you won't enter temptation. Well, what is this temptation? It's, it's best to understand this temptation as, as, as we've already seen that Satan is on the move. He's, he's coming with Judas and the religious leaders. He's going to test Peter. And really what the temptation is as Jesus will be arrested and, and, and brought to the cross is, is to flee, is to deny that they even knew Jesus, is to say, I don't, I don't know who this is. You see, as Jesus were, was going to the cross, the cost of following and believing and maintaining that faith was going to be so great, there was a temptation for them to fall away. And so Jesus commands them to pray. And, and what the writers of the gospel record for us is, is really rather shocking. Uh, Tyler alluded to it this morning during worship. The disciples are asleep when they should be praying and keeping watch and being alert because this is the greatest moment. This is, as Jesus will say later, the hour and power of darkness. In some sense, this is the pre-trial before he goes to the mock trial and then the cross. And yet, here these disciples are asleep. Luke's version is, is rather condensed, but if you look at Matthew and Mark, it actually tells us that Jesus goes off to pray alone, goes off to pray alone, and then he comes back three times to the disciples on three different occasions. And every time he says what he says here in verse 45, why are you sleeping? 
Stay alert. Be awake. Keep watch. Don't you know the hour that's at hand? In Jesus' greatest moment of darkness and trial, the disciples are asleep. And I think here the Gospels, using the disciples, just paint such a, a clear picture of humanity. Can, can you see yourself this morning in those disciples? Sleepy, unalert. These disciples had just spent three years with Jesus. Uh, no one on earth had seen the glory of God up close the way that these men had. As Jesus healed the sick, as he raised the dead, as he forgave sins, and yet here they are, in the weakness of their flesh, failing to obey God. And really, that's just a foretaste of what's to come. Because of their lack of prayer and vigilance, when Jesus is arrested, the disciples will flee. We see Peter, the, the bravest one of them all, say, saying just a few minutes earlier, Jesus, even if you're arrested, even if uh, I have to go to prison or death, I will go. And in the story that unfolds, uh, before a lowly servant girl, Peter says, I don't even know Jesus. I, I don't know that man. And denies him outright. This is the command that Jesus gives, and, and the conclusion is utter failure. In the sinfulness of the disciples, uh, they don't obey Jesus. And, and this is all of us, friends. Uh, this is why we started as we did, thinking about our condition in Adam, left to ourselves, all of us fail in our flesh to keep watch, to pray, to overcome temptation. But, but Luke sets Jesus up as the one who triumphs. You remember, Jesus is a man like us. Jesus, Jesus came as a man and he came to do what we could never do. And so now let's consider the cup. In verse 41, we see that Jesus withdrew from the disciples about a stone's throw away, and he knelt down and prayed. So now Jesus, knowing that the hour and power of darkness is at hand, knowing that he will face unimaginable suffering at the cross, he goes away to do warfare on his face. It's really remarkable here that we're told that Jesus knelt down to pray. Uh, the normal posture for Jewish people praying was that they would stand, on, stand upright with their hands raised to heaven, eyes looking up to heaven, praying to God, the King of heaven. And yet here is Jesus on his knees. Matthew tells us he was on his face. 
And notice what he says in verse 42. Luke summarizes the essence of his prayer, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus is on his face. He's crying out to his Father. And he's asking, he's requesting that he would remove this cup. God, if there's any other way. Again, again, Matthew and Mark tell us this happened three times. Jesus goes away to pray alone. Father, remove this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And what was the cup that Jesus was praying would be removed? What was this cup that, that he was afraid to drink? Well, if we look at the rest of the gospel stories, we know that he talks about drinking a cup which will lead to his death. But, but this death that Jesus had to face was not like other deaths. It's not like the death that you and I will face. And we see that as we look at the rest of the passage. Look in verse 44. As Jesus is praying, he is in agony. And he prayed all the more earnestly so that his sweat became like drops of blood, like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus was in great agony. And this idea of agony is really this idea of deep anguish of soul. Deep sorrow. This is why we, we call Jesus man of sorrows. What a name. In Matthew, Jesus tells the disciples, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. I'm so overwhelmed with agony I could die, Jesus says, in the garden. And the New English Bible translates this idea that he was full of horror and dismay full of dread, a holy dread. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears. Can you see the Son of God in that garden on his knees? crying out to the Father with loud tears. And Luke tells us that he had such anguish that his sweat became like drops of blood. Now this, this could just be a metaphor for his anguish, but, but it's also possible here that Jesus actually suffered from a rare medical condition. Uh, Luke is a physician, and he's the only one that records this aspect of the prayer in Gethsemane. 
There's this rare medical condition that's been recorded throughout human history on occasion called hematidrosis, where someone is under such anguish and agony that the, the blood vessels and their sweat glands burst. And their sweat mingled with blood flows out. And this happens when someone's under such great duress and fear, terror in their soul, in their mind. And what was it about Jesus? What was it about this cup that Jesus would be filled with horror and dismay? If we think back to Jesus' ministry, or, or this song we sung the mo- this morning, Jesus, you make the darkness go away. Jesus, there is no fear. Well, well that is so true of Jesus throughout his ministry. And do you remember how he fearlessly went to his ministry and cast out legions of demons? How he would rebuke the Pharisees in public, knowing that they would potentially silence him. He would go into the temple and flip over the tables in his zeal for the Lord. Absolutely fearless and confident that until the appointed hour, nothing could touch him in his ministry. And yet, here Jesus is on his knees in the nightfall of that garden in horror and dismay at the thought of drinking the cup. And that's because this cup that Christ drank for us was nothing less than the wrath, the wrath and judgment of God for our sin. That This cup was a cup unimaginable for the Holy One, the Son of God, to drink. You see, the scriptures teach us that the wages of sin is death. That what we deserve for our rebellion against God is judgment, is eternal death, and his punishment. And this idea of God pouring out his cup all through the Old Testament, we don't have time to go look, but it's this idea that he's going to pour out his cup of judgment, of wrath upon sinful humanity. You see, Jesus knew that if he were to submit to the Father and go to the cross, that he would, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that God was going to make him who knew no sin to become sin for us. That, that the Holy One, Jesus, who who the second person of our triune God had dwelled in perfect fellowship, in light, in love, in holiness, now as a man would become our sin. And in becoming our sin, the most horrific idea that the Son of God could fathom was this idea of separation from his father. From, from doing what always pleases him. From being in fellowship with him. 
As Martin Luther says, what we see here is the the mystery of mysteries. God forsaking God. And you remember in just a few short hours, Jesus will be on the cross where he will cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he will drink the cup of God's righteous judgment. And so here in the garden, on his knees, Jesus trembles at the thought of drinking this cup. And he pleads, God, if there is another way, Father, if there's any other way, I'm here, I'm willing to do your mission, it's for this purpose I've come into the world, but if there's any other way, God, can it be so? But friends, there, there is no other way. This is God's plan of salvation to save a sinful humanity. There is no other way except that the perfect and holy one becomes our sin so that we don't have to drink that cup. This this moment in the garden reveals at least two important things that we need to consider this morning. The first is just the, the sheer sinfulness of sin and the holiness of our God. You see, the agony in the garden shows us how serious our sin is, that it would require Jesus to be crushed on that cross. And in our culture, in our age and time, it's so easy just to make light of sin. It's so easy for us just to think sin really doesn't matter to God. It's really not that big of a deal if we go against him and his ways, right? God is love, and so we don't really need to concern ourselves with that. But do you see the Son of God on his knees in that garden? This is the price of our salvation. Some might say we we don't really need Jesus' blood to be shed for us and God to pour out his judgment. That seems awfully violent and harsh. We We just want to follow Jesus as an example of love. And of course, that's true, that Christ is our great example. But if we don't need to be saved from the righteous judgment of God, then why does the Son of God have to drink that cup and die on the cross? You see, God is a holy and righteous God. And His justice must be satisfied. He is holy and He hates sin because He is light. And sin is darkness. And so the Son of God had to drink that cup. On the one hand, we see the sinfulness of sin and the holiness of God, but 
Do, do you see also, on the other hand, the love of God? The love of our God. That, that he would send his only son into the world as a man to drink the cup for us. This love of God where Jesus says, Father, I wish there was another way, but nevertheless, I will do it. If this is what it costs to redeem humanity, then I will do it. I will lay down my life in sacrificial submission, and I will become sin. Do you see the abounding, overflowing, amazing love of our triune God foreshadowed in that garden and then on full display at the cross where God's holiness and love meet together as the Son of God is crushed. Jesus in that garden, he carried our griefs and sorrows so that we don't have to. He became sin and drank the cup of wrath so that we could be saved. This is the gospel. This is the, the good news. Jesus drank the cup of wrath so that we could lift up the cup of salvation and declare God's praise and glory. And so I just want to ask this morning, have you experienced that salvation? Have you seen the Son of Man on his knees for you doing battle preparing to go to the cross to drink the cup. If not, you are still in Adam. You are still under God's condemnation, and one day you will have to drink that cup of God's judgment. But, but friends, would you see Jesus this morning who drank that cup so that you don't have to. Turn to him. Come to him in faith. Cry out to him. His submission to the Father is our salvation for those who believe on him. Well, the disciples are in the garden and they're asleep. But, but we see Jesus alert, awake, laboring in prayer, undeterred, to do the Father's will. We think back to that first garden of Eden where, where Adam failed to obey God and it resulted in our defacing and our destruction. And here now in this garden of Gethsemane, Jesus as the last Adam obeys the Father. He says, not my will, I'm not going to follow my desires, but I will submit to you, God, and do your will. And as I mentioned, this really is the place of triumph and battle. Because after this moment of anguishing prayer, Jesus rises and he goes and gets his disciples and he says, come, let us be going. Jesus is ready to deal the decisive blow to the powers of darkness. In the rest of Luke's account, we see Jesus fearless as he always has been. 
fearless as they come to arrest him and they say, who is Jesus? Where is he? I am. As he stands before Pilate and he says, are you the king of the Jews? It is as you say. Knowing that will ensure his death. And then finally, as a lamb before its shears is silent, Jesus goes to the cross and he's crucified. In his obedient submission to God, in his self-giving sacrifice, the head of the serpent is crushed. Christ overcomes sin and Satan and death at the cross, fulfilling that promise made all the way back in that first garden. And he does it at the greatest cost. But that's not the end of the story, right? This is Luke 22. There's two more chapters. And so the crown, the crown. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we're told that it was for the joy that was set before Jesus that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, after Jesus defeated death, three days later he rose again victorious. He conquered the grave, he conquered our sin, and he ascended into heaven. He took up a crown as our king, and, and he rules at the right hand of God over an everlasting kingdom. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and his joy has been complete. What, what was this joy that Hebrews tells us Jesus endured the cross for? Well, certainly it was the joy of obeying his Father, the one who is love, the one who is light, the one in whom his soul delights. But, but it also is the joy that now as Jesus rules and reigns as our king, as the head of a new humanity, he is calling a people to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation, and he is redeeming us back into the image of God. He, he has set us free from the power of sin and Satan, and we can be what we were created to be. We can display God's glory and majesty in our relationships and in the church. We're no longer under condemnation. We are free because Jesus' submission to the Father means our salvation. And, and as we're going to see starting next week in the book of Acts, King Jesus is doing this work 2,000 years ago. He takes a man like Peter, who would cower before a slave girl. And, and the next scene we see is Peter proclaiming Christ before thousands. Peter ready to go to prison and even die. Why? Because the king is reigning and ruling. He has poured out his spirit. He has conquered sin and death. I want to invite the worship team to come up as we prepare to respond to 
Jesus Christ and, and worship in light of what he's done. And I want to close with a story of Abraham Lincoln. There's a story told of Abraham Lincoln when he was one day walking through the market and he saw a slave girl, a young teenager, up on the, the trade stand, uh, people looking to purchase her. And Lincoln walked by and moved with compassion. He said, how, how much to purchase this young woman? Lincoln hears it, he pays the price, and this young girl, he tells, okay, now you're free. The young girl says, well, what do you mean? What, is, what does that mean to be free? Am I free to be who I want to be? Yes, you're free, my dear, to be who you want to be. Oh, well, what does that mean? Am I free to, to say and think what I want to think? Yes, you're free to do those things. Am I free to go where I want to go? Lincoln says, yes, you can go anywhere you want to go. And then with tears streaming down her face, she says, then I want to go with you. I will follow you and be with you. You see, Lincoln paid a small, small price to set that young slave free. And her response was a life of allegiance and devotion. But when we think about Jesus, we see that he paid it all. He paid the greatest price to set us free. And now we're free to follow the Son of God. To take up our cross. To join Jesus and say, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Where you command me to go, I'll go. What you command me to do, I will do. Jesus' submission is our salvation.